alcohol consumption is quite prevalent and accepted within our society. We do not view it as a negative thing, and actually we associate it with fun and a good time. Many of us have indulged and made the declaration the next morning in our foggy, hazy state of regret that we will never drink again. Yet, the following weekend, we indulge in a few unwinders with friends to relax, long forgetting about the pledge we made to ourselves the weekend prior. Dry January is a new trend that promotes eliminating alcohol consumption for the entire month. It is a reset after excessive eating and drinking during the craziness of the holiday season. Dry January helps detox our system. You can even get a Dry January app that can help you track your drinking. It does seem, however, as if January is the only month that it is socially acceptable to state you're not drinking. If you're not drinking in a social situation in any other month, you are faced with a myriad of questions. On this episode of Pieces of Us, I talk with Alex Godbold. He discusses his addictive relationship with alcohol and the pathway to his sobriety. He challenges the stereotype of alcoholism and challenges listeners to not necessarily give up alcohol, but to seriously consider their own relationship with it. Let the light shine. Pieces of Us show. Uh, Thanks everybody again for tuning in yet for another week and hopefully you're enjoying what you're listening to so far. I have a very special guest with me this week as he sits there and grins and laughs at that. Um, He's, you know, a husband, father of two, an educator, a literacy coach. Yes. The one, the only. <laughs> I, I am working the way with how I introduce people. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> good, good, good. Well, this sounds good so far. I uh, just kind of pump people's tires, you know, get them, you know, yeah. pumped up to, to speak. But um, I have, I guess, my previous co-worker or old co-worker, not old co-worker, that's probably 45. what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, Alex Godbold with me today. So thank you for joining me. Well, that's great. I'm really happy to take part in this. Yeah, thanks. Oh, it's exciting. It's always it's always interesting when you text out like, "Hey, you want to come?" Yeah. <laughs> You're not sure what the response is going to be. Yeah. I was up for it as soon as I read it. <laughs> that's yeah. exciting. So um, I guess why I had asked you um, just kind of recently, um, you kind of started posting new things on Facebook, and um, I think it'd be really interesting um, conversation because um, you know. In society, and especially I think in Nova Scotia, but maybe in Canada, um, people tend to have a really interesting relationship with alcohol, Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes maybe a dangerous relationship 
with alcohol where they might not necessarily notice it because it's so prevalent within our society and so accepted. And, um, so, you know, we always say, or not always say, but a lot of people say they need alcohol to enjoy themselves or to go out. And, um, and you've just started, uh, posting a few things just kind of about your sobriety. So I figured we would kind of have a conversation just about open conversation about alcohol, your relationship and kind of your struggles and where you got to now. Yeah. Sounds great. So, um, I guess the first question, uh, just how old were you when you had your first drink? Oh man. I hope my parents aren't listening. (laughs) I was young. Uh, well, you know what? The the very first time I was really young, uh, and it was one of these situations where there was my parents were having a dinner party, and they had a in the in the basement. It was a, a finished basement. We refer to it as the rec room. They had uh, like a plastic uh, barrel. It was a fake barrel. What now we would know as a wine box or a wine bag, which we buy now. You can buy larger quantities for a slightly cheaper price. And this was in like this plastic barrel and the kids were downstairs. It was a, and the grownups were upstairs. And I remember, I don't know if I was dared or if I was wanting to be you know, rebellious, but I went over to it with a, um, not styrofoam, but a, like a wax Dixie cup that was in the bathroom that came out of this dispenser. And I filled it up with a small bit of this wine. It was red wine. I remember and I took shots out of it. And I even remember how I felt. I remember feeling drunk and my parents having to, you know, walk me to bed, give me water, make sure that I was okay. So when it, even at, a, at that young age, uh, you notice the difference in feeling and the fact that you're drunk. But other than that, I think my story is fairly typical. Uh, I grew up in a fairly rural area where drinking among teenagers at parties, pit parties in the woods house parties the parents were gone all that kind of thing started uh god i hate to say it in grade nine because my my youngest son is in grade nine and it was you know fairly regular uh grade nine ten it was uh just what we did locally uh for the most part most of the teenagers uh drank excessively on the weekends and from there it just it really continued right up until uh until recent, until recently. Yeah, yeah. and that's fairly common. And yeah. I know that's most people's story. Um, yeah. And growing up, was alcohol taboo in your house? Or no, kind of was it no. more just kind of there? And it was always around. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any memories of my parents being drunk. So it wasn't, I, I, I wouldn't say that I grew up in an alcoholic, house, uh, sorry, in an alcoholic household. Uh, but, but, you know, wine with dinner, uh, dinner parties, my dad would often have, uh, you know, two, three beer after work uh, during the week. And those habits I uh, picked up uh, later in life as well. Um, I, wh- where I was different from my parents was probably that I think I probably, well, I know that I drank a lot more than they did growing up, when I was growing up. Yeah, so no, it wasn't taboo in the least, but I, I don't. I also don't want to paint this picture of you know, having grown up in a dysfunctional alcoholic right. family because yeah. it's far, far, far from the truth. Well, and I think a lot of people have, um, I know with my husband's family, like, they had alcohol just in the house and they would be drinking, but by no means was it, like, I, it's not the stories of alcoholism and, no. you know, fathers drunk. No, and, no. Yeah. But it did, I think it probably, sh- and, and again, I, I don't want to say this to you know, blame my parents, uh, you know, uh, like a... Um, psychoanalysis session where, what was your relationship like with your mother? (laughs) It's nothing like that. But I think it nevertheless does shape uh, 
your habits and your perception of things. I, I remember finding it weird uh, visiting relatives, uh, my wife's relatives, and you know we'd go be invited over for a meal, and there was no booze, there was no wine, and I just thought, well, what what kind of, what kind of a dinner party is this? <laughs> it's like this is weird, uh, and you sort of associated that with a certain kind of conservatism, you know, which is ridiculous. I know now, but it took me forty five years to figure that out. I suppose, but yeah, I, I think that would be my my basic story in terms of growing up. Uh, and what alcohol um, was like in terms of uh, and, childhood and, and, and into the teenage years. And so, like, as you um, became older, um, how how did that change? Like, you know, no longer going out to parties, or was it more, like, did it continue? What, what, when I started to realize that things might be problematic, you mean, or? Uh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. It took a long time, and I think that, I think, I, I think that, you know, it sneaks up on you slowly. Um, and we don't often associate the term addiction with alcohol. We, we have an addictive substance that is just as addictive as heroin, tobacco, cocaine, uh, maybe even more so than some of those. I'm not too sure scientifically what's more addictive than the other. But we tend not to use the term addiction. We use the term alcoholism. Right. And this is what I have been learning in, uh, in my, my reading so far, is that that is what allows us, I think, to stick our heads in the ground and to not treat it like other addictive substances. We, we, we somehow treat it differently. So no one wants to say that they're an alcoholic. But I think, certainly I had a much easier time using the term addiction. I, I, I am comfortable saying that I was addicted to alcohol because when you think about it as addiction, you focus less on the person and more on the substance. And the old sort of dynamic, the old paradigm, if you will, of the term alcoholism is that you tend to focus on the person as though the person has some kind of a defect. When I'm an alcoholic and someone else isn't an alcoholic but that person drinks, the onus is on me. I'm the problem. I can't moderate. And you, you ask yourself the question, you know, why can't I be like everyone else? Why can't I moderate? But the reality is that you became, you're not an alcoholic, you're addicted. You're an addict because for so many years you consumed a product, a substance that is addictive. Uh, right. There was a great line <laughs> I read. It was a, uh, I don't know if he came up with it, but it was in an Irish wellness uh, website. So I've been reading so much about, uh, about alcohol and, and, and um, what they call now in the UK quitlet. So quitlet is a genre of literature of writers who are starting to write about the fact that they were addicted to alcohol and they decided to quit. But they aren't the typical AA type stories. They're very, very different. At any rate, this, this young uh, Irish guy I had written uh, an article, a reflective opinion piece on this Irish wellness site, and the uh, headline was, a guy walks into a bar, orders an addictive depressant, and becomes addicted and depressed. And <laughs> it just seems so simple to me yeah. now, and so obvious. And uh, for you know, I, and when, I, when I read that, I thought, how is it that I could have lived my life for so long not seeing that as a reality? Or even when I first started to ask myself, Am I, am I an alcoholic? The dreaded question, oh dear God, I can't be an alcoholic. If I'm an right. alcoholic, my life is ruined, my life is over. Um, it was never presented to me in that way. 
And I had, this was my third alcohol-free, I'll call it stint. The first time I quit for seven months on my own, uh, people call it white knuckling. Then I decided that I just needed a bit of distance from my old habits and that I would be able to moderate. So, and I did for a short time, but within, I don't remember, probably within a month, I was right back into the, the bad habits and drinking excessively and drinking dangerously, risky drinking. And were you justifying, like, like to go back, was it just because, you know, your friends or you go out for supper and then you say, well, I can have, you know, one drink. And I'm even just thinking of um, in dry, you know, now the the hot trend is the dry January. Yeah. And, like, yeah. you know, people participate in dry January. And, yeah. and I remember... I was like, okay, I'll, you know, I'm going to do dry yeah. January. And yeah. then... And how'd you do? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's just so interesting because it wasn't, it was like a week, it was that first weekend yeah. and I had gone out with some friends. We had done an escape room. We were going to go to dinner and I had prepped myself and I said, okay, like picked out, picked out what I was going to have for supper on the menu beforehand and thought yeah. of, okay, I'm going to get water with this. Yeah, yeah. Um, like it just to try to like put myself up, but then everybody was ordering, ordering a drink. And I, I, I honestly did. I felt that like that pressure and that thing that kind of yeah. need to miss out. Yeah. And then so, and so that's kind of what I'm relating or kind of yeah. asking, I yeah, guess. No, that's, and missing out is exactly it. And so during that first seven month stint, and this is the funniest thing is you it's hard the, the first three weeks or a month maybe are the hardest because you're breaking habits i i was i was physically addicted i didn't have dts it wasn't that extreme because i didn't drink that much um but i would i, I had physical sensations like this tightening in my chest and tightening in my esophagus that would hit uh, while I was drinking, it would hit me at about 5, 5.30 cocktail hour, you know, 5.36. Um, but when I stopped drinking during the first month, it would hit me here at work at school at about 2.33 o'clock. I would start to get the feeling where only a, a, a drink, uh, usually I'd start with a pint of uh, craft beer, so like a, a, an IPA or something like that. So the feeling of that going down is what would relieve that tightening. And um, I forget what, where I was going with this. Um, oh yeah, breaking habits and so on. So once you, once you get through that first month, those sort of those physical sensations go away, and then you still deal with the psychological dependence. But what's also happening at the same time is you feel unbelievably great. And when I think back uh, to those seven months, I ask myself. And then the second time was five months. But so when I think back to those two stints, I ask myself, why wasn't feeling so good, feeling so right. much better? Why wasn't that enough to continue? And it's exactly what you say. It's this fear of missing out. It's this feeling that your life isn't complete, that you're missing out on something. And you can't shake that when you live in the what I call the Alcoholics Anonymous understanding of addiction because the Alcoholics Anonymous understanding of addiction and not everyone who goes to AA necessarily believes this but if you look at the literature you look at the 12 steps you look at the philosophy it's very outdated it was developed uh, I don't know when the, the, the founders uh, got started in the 50s maybe this is how they approached alcoholism. And they even quote a doctor who said that it's an allergy 
certain people have. So that basically means that the alcoholic has a shortcoming that other people don't have. So you sort of live your life not drinking in such a way as you kind of feel sorry for yourself. You're a bit pouty because the message is you're different. You're not like others who right. can moderate. And the second time I went to AA for five months and people who, for whom AA didn't work and people who are you know a bit critical of the approach, you're always reluctant to do it because the people who go to AA are so welcoming. They're so wonderful. They have transformed their lives and it worked for them. But for those of us that it doesn't work for, um, it's fair, I think, to ask the question, why didn't it work for me? And to put on your sort of critical thinking hat and try and figure out what doesn't work. And that was one of the major things for me that I couldn't articulate at the time. But through Quitlet, I have been able to understand that it's, it's an outdated, scientifically unsound understanding of addiction. AA doesn't focus, at least in the literature, doesn't focus on the science of alcohol. It doesn't ask the question, what is alcohol and what does it do to people? Quitlet does that. And the, the, the first book that I read was called This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. And her story is really, really interesting because she didn't drink at all until she was 26 or 27 when she got a really important job, I think, in marketing. And she was an executive. And her boss basically told her, look, you're going to have to network in the bars and she was pressured to drink for work purposes. And that's how she became addicted to alcohol. She didn't like it. And she would force herself to drink it to get through these networking sessions. You know, she'd be away at a conference and five, six o'clock here in the bar. And she got to the point where she loved it and was drinking two, uh, two full bottles of wine every day. And she started to realize she had a problem. And for a very, very long time, about uh, not quite a year, she was still drinking, but researched. She wanted to know everything she could about alcohol. And she just walked out of her office one day and looked at her partner and said, if you want to drink with me, tonight's the last night that, I'm, that we can do it, because tomorrow I'm never drinking again. And she didn't. Yeah. And her research focuses on alcohol and she has a section called the drinker or the drink and this is where she mentions that Alcoholics Anonymous focuses on the drinker when we really should be focusing on the drink. The drink is addictive and if you drink it regularly and continuously don't feel bad if you become addicted it's a logical conclusion to your habit and when you understand that and you apply it to yourself your, your focus just completely, completely changes. And you, you're no longer feeling sorry for yourself. You're not pouting. Right. Because you understand that it's not your fault and that it's expected, you know. And some people, uh, you know, still can moderate. And this is one of the things that I ask myself, like my, my wife, my um, Allison, um, you know, she can take it or leave alcohol, really. She sometimes... Even now, she's decided not to uh, have alcohol in the house. I didn't put any pressure on her to do so, but she just decided that she would go along for the ride, I guess. And every once in a while, she thinks, oh, you know, a nice cider or something to really, really hit the spot and help her relax after a stressful day. And so there, I, I don't think that everyone necessarily is going to get addicted because it's an addictive substance. But 
I think that what it is is that people, those who like it, like it a lot. <laughs> and, and, you know, you can, you can, it's just so easy to, uh, to get to the point where, you know, you need it, you know. Yeah, so that, and that's that. That was the the game changer for me was was reading my first quit lit book by Annie Grace and just totally understanding what was going on with me uh, physically, neurologically, and psychologically. Yeah, yeah. So what what moment or not moment? But and I know you said you like there was a couple stints where you mm. tried. Uh, what kind of made you, because I know a lot of people come to that, like, I'm not drinking again, this is kind of my last drink. Yeah. Um, but what moment did you have, or was it just kind of a progression of different events? Yeah, it was a, like, it was a, the first time, the first time it was, it was affecting my relationship, and I would, uh, when I drank, I would become um, resentful, and I would sometimes be belligerent, so, you know, what kind of partner wants to put up with that, right? So it was uh, my partner that told me that she didn't like this and this is what was happening uh, and I needed to think about it. So I just thought, well, I guess it's time to grow up and quit drinking. And for those seven months, it was great. And I had been working on the house with my oldest son doing uh, work outside. Uh, and it was the end of summer. And I had just run the, the Quebec Marathon. And I decided, I want a beer. And I just said, you know, like, I can do it. I'm going to have one beer. And I did. I remember I got a Propeller IPA. It was a big beer, 640 <laughs> milliliters, so that's basically probably about two. But, you know, not a ridiculous amount of alcohol. And I sat down and I drank it, and I thought, I'm going to do that once a week. I'm going to have one Propeller IPA every Saturday. And it was school year was starting up, you know, so new habits, new changes. And I think it worked for two Saturdays, I think I did the one IPA. Then the next week, well, oh, get a couple ciders as well. And then, it, you know, Saturday became Friday, Saturday, hump day, Wednesday. And then before you know it, I'm drinking more often than I'm not. So it's almost like small justifications of just, yeah, yeah I can do this. Yeah, and, and there was no rock bottom for me, which mm -hmm. is also, that's the other sort of AA story and association that we have with alcohol and alcoholism is that you have to have this horrible rock bottom moment in order to quit drinking. Right. Well, I never had that, and I, 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 my career was never in jeopardy. Um, family life, despite what I said about me being belligerent and so on, you know, I think, I don't, I don't think it would have ruined my marriage. It might have. Who wants to take the chance, really? So it's important, I think, for people to understand that this is what Quitlet is about. People who are drawn to Quitlet, people who write it, the people who it helps, are people who you don't give the vibe of an alcoholic. I mean, what did you think when you were reading this stuff that I wrote on Facebook? Did you... Right. You know, and, we and worked together. And, and, and you knew that I was I think physically fit I, and Yeah, and active. I think when I look back to, um, you know, we always had uh, lunches together. There was a crew of us mm -hmm. that you, we would sit. And, and I actually remember you bringing it up at one point of just saying, you know, questioning. And I think that, like, oh, am I an alcoholic, or, like, we just, right. we, I remember having, and it, it's weird that I remember this, but I remember specifically talking about, uh, like, just drinking, and, you know, are we drinking too much, and, mm -hmm. and it almost became, like, kind of the consensus of, like, no, it's fine. We're fine, like, and we, and we oh, went out for like, a few Christmas parties, yeah. and had, you know, and I don't regret and any it, of those things. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and I think, yeah. too, like, I, I guess, I don't even know if I'm going with a question with this, but did you find, you know, it difficult because a lot of people are telling you 
Like, oh, yeah. You know, time. oh, it's fine. Well, yeah, I yeah, do yeah. the same. I go yeah, home yeah. and have a glass of wine. So then you kind of, I guess, justify or just oh, kind of yeah. go, okay, well, oh, then. Oh, yeah, major herd is... mentality and major, uh, yeah. uh, the word might come back to me, but there's that. And then there's the fact that I, that I was a marathon runner. And people who knew me and knew that I was physically active to the extent where I was doing marathons, at least one and a half marathon a year, biking 23 kilometers to work uh, yeah, a couple particularly... times a week. <laughs> Somehow, I, I, when I think back, I, geez, and, and like when I sometimes think really honestly, because you're more honest when you're not drinking, about how much I drank and that I managed to do that, I find it baffling. And... Um, I, I, I'm in a couple of online communities of people who read Quitlit and who are, uh, most of them AA didn't work for them. Not everyone, it's a mixed bag of people. I asked that question one time. I said, this is my, this is my drinker's profile. And I described myself. And I said, a lot of people, uh, my peers and friends, you know, have a really hard time putting these two things together. When, when they hear me talk about the fact that I have issues with alcohol, they think, well, you can't be an alcoholic. Right. How could you run marathons and be an alcoholic? Somehow I was. So I, and, I, and I wrote this in this post, and a woman had responded that she had run, it was over 10 marathons while drinking heavily, several of which she ran hungover. So wow. she had been out, you know, partying. It, uh, it was probably, I, I don't know, she didn't say this, but I imagine it being like a destination marathon. Like imagine if you're a drinker, and a marathon, <laughs> and you decide to run the Dublin oh Marathon. God. I mean, the you know, or you decide to run the marathon in Vegas, or I mean, the temptation mm-hmm. to not go out and hit the pubs in Dublin would, you know, it would be really, really difficult—a difficult thing to do. So that, it, it, then when I saw that, I was happy to see because you, you think you, you, there can't be other people like this, but right. there are tons. It's unbelievable the number of people who drink to excess. Uh, and managed to be very, very, very active and fit. It's it's quite uh, surprising, actually. Yeah. And now I feel a lot better, and I feel I'm a bit disappointed in myself because I'm starting to think that I might not do a fall marathon this year. And I think part of it might be that I had to prove to myself that I was okay. Uh, interesting. You know, so that, you almost push yourself to, yeah. you know, I have to bike to work to... Yeah, because otherwise, otherwise I'm an yeah. alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> if I can run a marathon, then I can drink all I want because I can run a marathon. <laughs> it's but, like feeding a kid a chocolate. Like, be like, well, eat your carrot and then we'll give you some chocolate. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, and, and I, and yeah, so it's interesting that now I'm, I'm in a sort of headspace where I'm still active, you know, uh, running, cycling, I go to the gym, whatever, like four or five times a week, but I don't feel as motivated or I don't feel like it's oh I'm, I'm just sort of thinking about time commitment and things like that as well the, the amount of time that you spend training for a marathon and do I want to do that because of all of this newfound energy that I have because I'm not drinking I don't necessarily want to just focus exclusively on marathon training so that you know that's whereas before it was marathon training and drinking <laughs> and that was my life for the four months that you train for a marathon you feel guilty and you give yourself oh I'm not going to drink and you you, I would stop for five six seven days and then you'd think oh I'm fine I just took a took a week off and then you get back into it and the old habits would would resurface quite quickly so do you like for now um do you stay away from those triggers of um 
okay, well, I'm going to buy an IPA or, like, I'm not going to go... Oh, I, I'm not going to drink. I never... I can't drink. I've accepted that. Um, and the, and this is neurological. Uh, the, the, this, I read this from Annie Grace's book, um, This Naked Life, that for me to be able to ever drink moderately is probably not realistic. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder the extent to which people actually do drink moderately, people that say they do, like, a glass of wine. Does it really mean a glass? Probably not. I think for most people it means at least three, you know, two or three, because you want to get the feeling, the buzz, and so on. But the difference now, though, with Quitlet, and, and there's a sense of freedom when you understand what alcohol is when you understand what it was doing to you what addiction is when you understand the control that it has on your life uh you when you realize that you're free from that um the feeling is so powerful and empowering that i i wouldn't ever want to go back and that that's what the quitlet movement does is it allows you to understand alcohol. And it also, it becomes something, and this is where you have to be careful not to be sort of the judgmental, <laughs> preachy <laughs> person, but you, you do start to understand the extent to which it's just ingrained in everything we do. Yeah. Uh, another quitlet author, Catherine Gray, wrote a book called The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, and she uses the metaphor of the Matrix film, right, where you pull your head out and you just have this moment where you realize, oh my God, we have been duped. <laughs> and I feel, well, that was one of the things after I read This Naked Mind and another one called Alcohol Lied to Me by Craig Beck. I always prided myself as an English teacher, uh, <laughs> being a critical thinker and really in espousing that in my students, you know, trying to get students to think critically, and I always felt that I was intelligent that way, that I could look below the surface of things, and that I had a good understanding of the world in that respect. And after I read those books and came to this understanding, I thought to myself, I was almost humiliated. I thought, how could I have been doomed for so long in relation to the way that alcohol is presented to us? Right. And how could I say that that wasn't me? You know, when, when, uh, I mean, I could look at a, a picture, you look at the NSLC magazine, uh, with occasions, you know, all the pictures in there of fine looking people dressed well, you know, laughing, enjoying a glass of wine. The reality behind alcohol, the statistics are, you know, just as horrifying, if not more so. Well, they are more horrifying than tobacco. More people die from alcohol than do tobacco. You almost need to do like a side by side, any of those images that NSLC puts out or any like, um... Yeah. Booze campaign or booze company yeah. ads put like a side-by-side -side image of like reality it's almost like those well, yeah. instagram like with the yeah. picture perfect home and then here's the reality like yeah everything shoved in a corner yeah well ad busters used to do those um to sort of present the truth about different kind of kinds of products they had them for the perfume industry about anorexia and things like that but i just refused to to, to want to dig deeply right. when it came to my drinking habits and so what are a few few of those big things that you that you see that you're kind of like oh my god are we like that 
I know I just you're, you posted like I'm not going to be preachy. Invite me to yeah, yeah, yeah. you know to your parties and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But be preachy here. Like what? Like what is a big thing that you see that you're just like you're kind of like I can't believe I didn't see that before. Well, I think uh, I, I maybe alcohol to relax and unwind to re- to uh, relieve anxiety because uh, that's what I I think that's why I drink. I mean I. Yeah, probably one of the major reasons that I drink. But it's so ridiculous because the alcohol is what causes the anxiety, you know. Um, it's like, have you read The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry? No. It's a French kids, well, quote-unquote kids classic. It's a, a book that's kind of written for kids, but there's a lot of depth to it. And the older you get, the better understanding you have <laughs> of it. And The Little Prince is takes the narrator on these different tours of... Uh, it takes it takes the narrator on a tour of these different planets, and he takes him to the planet where there's the drinker who drinks to forget he drinks. <laughs> and that was you you drink because you're depressed, you drink because you have anxiety, but it's the alcohol that's causing it. And as soon as you remove it, the depression and the anxiety is gone, it's mm-hmm. completely gone. Like I, I mean, I, it's human nature to have a little bit of anxiety and to have the blues, and to feel a little glum. But um, when I when I don't drink my perception of the world completely changes. And my vision of the world, I I was seeing the world through the eyes of a resentful, depressive, depressive, depressed person. But I never was willing to look at the alcohol. (laughs) Right, because that's there to help you. That's right. That's 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 my buddy, that's my friend to to help me get through this. If I don't have that, God, what do I have? And I just couldn't imagine a world without it. Uh, I just couldn't imagine being happy without it when the opposite is is the truth. And um, so that's one thing. Another thing, another thing <laughs> that I had, a, I still have a hard time with this one. Uh, in any Grace's book, This Naked Mind, she talks about um, lim, limit, like the, the word is liminal, and I, th- I hope I'm using it right, like subliminal. So, liminals, I think I'm using it right when I use it plurally, what it is is how our subconscious has been so deeply manipulated and brainwashed into believing things about alcohol that are actually false. So when you align your conscious understanding of something with your subconscious, you have what she calls, um, oh, this is, it's, maybe you can edit this later. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm leaving all of yeah, this yeah, in. Yeah. Mr. Uh, Gobble yeah, struggling yeah, to find words. Um, <laughs> cognitive resonance. So let me start over. One of the things that she talks about in the book is when you get to the point when you decide that alcohol is not working for you anymore, it's causing problems, and you decide you want to stop. You wake up hungover, usually in the middle of the night, feeling terrible, and you tell yourself, this is it. I've got to stop this. This is ridiculous. I can't be hungover like this. For me, it was in the shower. Like, like I'd be in the shower. I'd be looking at the drain, looking at the water going down the drain, and I'd be like, I went and did it again. I, I've got to stop doing this. So your conscious self wants to stop drinking, mm-hmm. but you can't. And you can't figure out why you can't stop drinking. 
and or why you can't moderate. Usually you want to moderate because you don't really want to stop right. drinking. <laughs> because you can't eliminate alcohol from your life. So you want to moderate. So what Annie Grace says, and this is backed by psychological research, is that your conscious self, your conscious mind is contradicting your subconscious because your subconscious has been trained, has been educated your entire life to think positively about alcohol. And those will be from your own experiences, university parties, good times at Christmas parties. So in your, your head, in your, your subconscious self, every alcohol is great. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you have been brainwashed, educated, whatever word you want to use, to believe these things. So you have this cognitive dissonance where your subconscious is not aligning with your conscious. And your subconscious is more powerful than your conscious, and that's why you can't quit drinking. She says in her book, by the end of this book, that cognitive distance will no longer exist. You'll have cognitive resonance. I'm going to take your subconscious and I'm going to align it up with your conscious desire to quit drinking and you're going to be successful. And I read that and I thought, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And it worked. I finished the book and I thought, I'm never going to drink again. It totally worked. So she has all these different chapters where she talks about the cognitive dissonance. She says, your conscious mind wants to stop drinking but your subconscious mind has been told for so long that and this is where I was going before I stumbled for example that alcohol tastes good so she wants to debunk all of these myths so the first one is I need alcohol to have a good time then she explains why you don't why that is not only that you don't need alcohol to have a good time but she proves to you that in fact the opposite is true when you drink excessively, you wake up the next morning, there's a bit of shame there. You might have said something stupid. You might you have done something blues. stupid. You get the booze blues. Mm-hmm. But the other one that she had, her chapter on alcohol tastes good. I got to that one and I thought, there's no way you're going to convince me because I know I got to quit drinking and I know I'm going to be successful this time, but you're never going to convince me that a craft brewed IPA doesn't taste good. You're never going to convince me that a Bordeaux with a stinky goat cheese from France isn't a heavenly pairing that cannot be matched. (laughs) And I still don't think I'm fully convinced, but she does put forth a good argument. And what she starts with was, think of your first sip of alcohol. Yeah. Did it taste good? Yeah. You'll never find one person that is going to say that as soon as they took a sip of alcohol, I thought, man, that's good. And I thought, it's true. So that was enough to get me thinking and even, I guess, like, even with beers and even with wine, you you always start with, like, the cheapest just to down it, and then eventually yep. your, like, taste buds, I guess, kind of grow into more of, like, a yeah. different style. But, yeah, yeah and you, there, don't, there, you don't enjoy the no, taste of it. No, there's alcohol. even, like, we, we used to block our nose and chug a can of beer so that you wouldn't taste it. Yeah. So, and I, I, so I thought, well, how does it that you develop uh, or you, you progress uh, over, over time to really like love the taste of alcohol you know and uh so that i found that interesting and what does she say like is it just basically it's not that you acquire a taste it's uh, she explained what goes on neurologically through addiction basically Mm. yeah and i can't articulate i don't remember because a lot of the scientific information tends to go in i understand it while i'm reading it but i don't retain it because it's you know terminology that i'm not familiar with but uh so it's it's you know it's fascinating stuff and even there i kind of felt you just feel good thinking that maybe I was wrong. Maybe alcohol doesn't actually taste good. You, you, you're diff- if you're trying to quit drinking, you're open to examining that as a possibility. Um, 
Yeah, Craig Beck, actually, in Alcohol Lied to Me, what he says when he promotes his, his services, uh, because he offers counseling and, and, and training and things like that, he says that he's going to help you stop drinking. You won't have to do it on willpower, because that doesn't work. You won't have to go to what he says are humiliating uh, group therapy sessions like AA. I would take issue. They're not humiliating. Um, you won't have to go to expensive rehab that you can't afford. And what he basically says is the drinker or the drink, he's going to focus on the drink, and you need to change your perception of what alcohol is. And they give you scientific explanations of what it is and very, very clear scientific explanations of what it does to your body. And that, that is really helpful. Um, you, I think there needs to be a desire there to want to quit drinking because then it's just like the fear factor that we all know doesn't work. Like when Mad comes to school and shows all the horrific videos, in the moment the kids are frightened and say, mm-hmm. I'll never drink and drive. But I, I think that there's a lot of evidence to show that that approach doesn't work. So you can't scare people out of drinking. But if you change your perception of alcohol to from something that tastes good and gives you so much gustatory pleasure <laughs> to it's actually a poison that my body rejects and that's why I'm hungover. Right. You need to start thinking that way and that, and that helps you um, not want to drink anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really like the interest, like the psychological perspective or like the scientific because it is so true. Like we're putting a substance into our body that makes us feel physically ill. Yeah. And that yeah. we're accepting that as a society. Like, yeah, but yeah. it makes my frail show, guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, it's great to, for dinner parties. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, Craig Beck says it's basically, he, he, when he was able to, move away from drinking and his story um is very you know came from a upper middle class background had a a very important i think also uh, marketing job uh and ended up with drinking two bottles of wine a day and was you know said he was a wine connoisseur was spending up to four hundred dollars on one bottle uh and he's got this great line in his book about when (laughs) when the surgeon opens you up uh he's not gonna say He's not going to look at your destroyed liver and say, well, at least that guy drank the good stuff. <laughs> not, it, your, your liver doesn't care what the origin of the wine is and whether it's Planck or mm-hmm. an expensive Bordeaux from, you know, a Chateau from uh, saint Emilio or whatever. And I was that guy. I was a wine snob. Oh, God, I'm, I must have driven people nuts at dinner parties. Um, you know, but it's who I was. And... Uh, I certainly don't re- regret it. You know, I, I don't uh, have any regrets. That, that there's a good metaphor that Annie Grace gives in her book, or no, it's in one of her podcasts where she says, "In the, the AA twelve step program, the AA people will say that it's not a religion and not religious, and they aren't in the sense that you know if you're Muslim you can't go. They aren't religious in that way." But it's a very Christian narrative. It's it's a redemption, a sinner redemption narrative. You accept that you had no control over your life and that a higher power is the only thing that could... They used to use God, but now they've changed it to higher power, so it sounds a little less religious. So you have this sort of... You sought redemption. You, you were given redemption through the 12 steps and that your previous life, you were 
misled or you were a sinner. You know, they don't use the term sinner, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Right? So you would look back on your previous life potentially with regret, but mm-hmm. and like embarrassment or like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, and the ashamed, whole, I guess. Yeah, and even the idea yeah. of making amends, like, and they and the, the reason they. That AA wouldn't work for me, and people would always say, "You got to do the steps." And I'd look at the twelve steps, and the one about making amends was, "Okay, well, like okay, my wife told me I was belligerent, and you know, I apologized for that, and I've been, a, I knew that I was, what, what's the language? Can I say asshole? Anything? Yeah. You know, I knew that I was sometimes an asshole with the kids, you know, uh, because of alcohol, and I owned up to that. So this idea that I was going to have to, you know, make this list of amends and go and apologize to someone I might have insulted at a dinner party, that just, it just didn't seem like it was something that I needed to do. And if anyone's listening and they think that I should do that, by all means, get in touch with me. <laughs> and I would be happy to have an I want an apology. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, and, if, and if you're coming to me, I might, and it might be sincere, maybe, and I would sincerely give it to you. But it just, it just wasn't me. And even starting the meetings, like, you know, my name's Alex, and I'm an alcoholic. Like, I had trouble with that. You know, I had difficulty with that. And it did, it just didn't seem, uh, didn't work for me. It wasn't, it wasn't who I was. Um, but Annie Grace gives, instead, instead of thinking that way, she gives this great metaphor where she says, you, you think of yourself, your drinking self as a house that you're in that's burning, that's slowly burning. You got to get out of that house, right? But it doesn't mean that the house doesn't contain great memories. Right. So you, you you got to let it burn and you can think back to that house with fond memories. That's perfectly acceptable. But you've got to move on. And you can't, you sure as hell can't, can't stay it. in the house because yeah. you're going to die. Yeah. You know, and that that worked for me because I don't want to think that I wasted uh, the year that I lived in France. You know, like when I think back to the year that I taught English in France and I traveled, there were a lot of things I didn't do that I probably, I don't even want to say should have done, like going to certain museums. At the time, when I went to visit London for the first time, it was all about going to the pubs. I wanted to try real ales. I wanted to drink bitters. And I'm glad I did it. I have no regrets. When I lived in France, I got to know wines. And I, I, like I the, the example I gave of, of Bordeaux with a stinky goat cheese, I mean, those were some of the most amazing experiences of my life that I, I don't want to live regretting. It's like I don't want to apply a revisionist history right. to my own past that is false you know uh but i got to the point where it uh it wasn't working for me anymore you know the second time when i decided to go to aa um this is a bit of a low moment uh admission <laughs> story but i was basically i i had had some wine uh, during the week and i had to drink more wanted to drink more so when I knew I could sneak up to the room and the kids wouldn't see me, I went up to my bedroom and my partner was gone. I don't know if she was gone, like, uh, she wasn't gone overnight, but she wasn't around. So I basically hid in my room so I could drink more, you know, so and the kids wouldn't see me. Like, and then I woke up the next morning and I thought, oh, no, no, like I'm hitting these, I'm hitting, I'm slowly hitting these firsts, you know, that mm-hmm. could progressively get a lot worse. And maybe I would have hit some kind of horrible rock bottom, you know, but, uh, those kinds of things are starting to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So what has been um, the most rewarding part about stopping? 
I would have to say that this subtitle here, the first, th this book by Ruby Warrington is called Sober Curious, The Blissful Sleep, Greater Focus, Limitless Presence, and Deep Connection Awaiting Us All on the Other Side of Alcohol. It's the sleep. Mm. The sleep is, I sleep every night at least six uninterrupted hours of sleep, at least. And if there is an interruption, it's usually because I just maybe have to go to the bathroom and I go back to bed and I fall asleep again right away. And that alone, if you sleep well, the extent to which that's going to affect yeah, your wellness so yeah. is unbelievable. And yeah, that, that's the biggest, biggest thing that I, that, uh, I, that I noticed before the last two times. But for some reason, I'm really noticing now. And yeah, that's the biggest thing for sure. Yeah, um, and I just generally happier, you know, I just, and it's not a big, you know, religious transformation. Uh, and I said before that my perception of the world has completely changed. That makes it sound so grandiose and like it was this massive road to Damascus moment. Um, you know, you go, day-to-day -day life can still be mundane and, I'm uh, always sort of seeking transcendence in other ways now. Um, but I'm generally happier, for sure. Yeah, I had even read this one book while I was drinking called The Happiness Curve. And this guy looks at all kinds of data from surveys. And it's a really good book. He's a... Uh, I don't know what he is, actually. I, don't, I was going to say he's a psychiatrist, but he's not. Anyway, he comes up with this very convincing argument that the midlife crisis, and he doesn't want to call it that because crisis is too extreme, but you hit this slump in midlife where you're depressed is too strong a term. This is like this melancholy kind of, is this all there is, you know, and uh, typical midlife crisis stuff, I think. And then uh, that you get to the bottom of the slump and then you come out of it. So when I read this book, I thought, perfect, finally someone has articulated, you know, what I'm feeling. Uh, and it felt good, but it certainly didn't pull me out. Pull me out of the slump. It just presented what you were going through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and it named it and, it and it sort of told you that this is normal. Mm -hmm. And But when I quit drinking, I didn't feel that way anymore. Mm. You know? And I, and I thought to myself that, yeah, that that was the root of that melancholy mood, which was pretty constant. Um, depression may be too strong a term. It certainly was having, you know, depressive thoughts. I don't want to use the term depression because I don't want to... Kind of the buzzword or the... Yeah, and yeah. for people who, you know, can't get out of bed and who are, you know, like, sincerely, legitimately, clinically depressed, I, I don't want to yeah. undermine their But there is that stories. cloud or that kind yeah. of fog. Yeah. I kind of call it a depressive fog that you're still kind of functioning and going through. And, yeah. But yeah, And still, still having great thoughts. moments and yeah. still having the sort of uh, fun energy while teaching with kids and still being like a funny guy teacher. I, mean, I thought I was funny and the students probably don't, but you know You're what I mean? <laughs> <Come on. laughs> but you know that energy yeah. that you get in the class, like all that was still occurring, but there was this underlying, you know, uh, like emptiness or was it? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Ennui. I think, you know, the French philosophers uh, <laughs> might, might use as a term and that's just gone, just gone, you know? Yeah. And, and even when I think back, like it's so self-indulgent as a white man of privilege, middle-class privilege to, you know, be coasting through life, to be pouty in that way, you know? At the same time, you get to a point where, you know, I suppose it is a privilege to be able to ask yourself these questions and to be able to 
try and figure out what your role is in the world and so on. But um, yeah, you know, is it alcohol definitely gave that sort of grayness, that cloud, like you say, that fog where you just feel kind of mopey and, and so on. Yeah, and that, so that, that's gone. It, it, I'm not like walking around blissful all the time. Um, but there is, a, if for anyone who's thinking of trying this out, I'm looking at the <laughs> microphone because those are the Just list- envision all the those, listeners those that are the we listeners. have. <laughs> uh, you do go through this amazing uh, euphoric stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you get past the cravings and you get past the difficulty and when all these things start happening when you, you just didn't think that it was possible as an adult to sleep as well as you are you, there is a euphoric stage but it uh, it doesn't last forever and uh, when you start the last couple of days oddly I've been thinking about drink about drinking about beer for some reason and you just have to go back they always say in, in, in the uh, sober uh, quit lit uh, books and, and these groups that I chat with online that you could go back to your whys you know write down a list of whys and then mm-hmm. read them because you forget right yeah you forget and then you go back to that fond memories and yeah yeah that yeah. you know subconscious yep yeah yeah all those things that you associate with alcohol you you think that that this time you'll be you'll, yeah this time you'll get that back without mm-hmm. all the other stuff yeah. and okay. since I've been I, I you know will fully I, I don't like the term Sober just because, it's, you know, since cannabis is legal now, I, I smoke cannabis every once in a while or eat it or whatever. Um, it's a different uh, drug. It's not a depressant. Uh, I can take it or leave it, you know, but uh, it, it's a feeling of elevation. It doesn't impair it. I, the term they use now is microdose. So that's sort of way to still find that little bit of transcendence without my life uh, potentially... <laughs> <laughs> falling apart at the seams because of how destructive and toxic alcohol is. Well, that's in some of the books, they look at the toxicity of different drugs, and cannabis is really surprisingly like mm-hmm. really low in terms of toxicity. I mean, that's not to say that you can't become psychologically addictive. And yeah, I'm and that's, careful. With that's that, a whole other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, that's why I got. I just want to be honest because. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't. I just think it's important to to, to put that out there because I'm not. Uh, this purest saint who, you know, doesn't uh, touch anything. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's, and I was worried because the university days, I would do both, right? Like the, it was right. the party thing and uh, this sort of Jack Kerouac beat of uh, a generation <laughs> draw when you're an English major was part of who I was. And I wondered if, uh, if I tried that, if I, it would make me want to drink, but it doesn't. So, mm. Do you talk to your boys about your relationship with alcohol? Like, oh, yeah. Are you open with them about it? Oh yeah, it? these books like, are always around, and yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, they're they're uh, Matsu's uh, finishing grade twelve, uh, so he will be eighteen in May, and Felix is uh, fourteen. So oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I died cannabis. All like yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they know that I um, do that every once in a while, and it's important, you know, and uh, they because. Part of that subconscious conditioning, you know, why do we associate alcohol with every single event, every wedding, every Christmas, every, well, because we see our family doing it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for them to, to understand that that happened to me and that it continued throughout my life and that it, I decided I needed to stop and that they don't necessarily have to 
follow in my footsteps, you know. And this generation, statistically, I'm not saying that, oh, my kids are angels, they'll never... I'm not saying that, but statistically, this uh, millennials drink less, Mm -hmm. significantly less, because they are perhaps more educated. The cynical observations are, oh, they're all at home on their telephones, and I (laughs) I don't think that that's true. I, I, I think that they just probably saw an entire generation of parents like us right. drinking excessively and thinking well, dad's an idiot when he drinks like <laughs> <laughs> he thinks he's funny but he sounds like a goof and I'm not I'm not gonna do that um yeah so in that in in, in relation to that I think that there's a shift that's happening this quit lit movement certainly uh is is, sh- is helping shift things in the UK where there's a major major uh, excessive drinking problem probably more than here. Mm. So I think things are changing. <coughs> and there seems to be um, a bit of an awakening um, and people admitting to the fact that uh, Ru- Ruby uh, Warrington uses the expression, you know, we're those of us who drink, uh, the, and I think that's 80% of North Americans drink, adults, are all kind of just a little bit addicted. You know? Oh, yeah. And I think that that is the terminology that we need to start using. Uh, yeah. Not to necessarily make people feel shame, but to get away from this sort of binary of you're either an alcoholic or you're not. Or you're not. Yeah. There's plenty of gray areas, you know, and uh, um, Catherine Gray talks about a scale, right. you know, of, of, of addiction when it comes to alcoholism, a one out of ten scale. And the classic rock bottom alcoholic that we have in our minds is like an 8 to a 10, right? And then kind of sort of a little addicted, maybe be a 1 to a 3. And I was I was probably well over, I, if I was 5, 6, maybe 7, I, I was what you call a risky drinker to the point. And it's interesting that with the term alcoholism, another stat that comes up in, I think, in Annie Grace's book is that 35% of people who end up having to get medical treatment for some kind of liver issue that is a result of alcoholic, 35, uh, sorry, that is a result of drinking alcohol, 35% are not what professionals would call alcoholics. Wow. So that's a lot of people. Yeah. That's like a third of people who drink Mm -hmm. and who have major medical issues with their liver don't fit the alcoholic. alcoholic. And that's why we need to throw that... Yeah, yeah. Out the window, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And yeah. Think, we need to start thinking about it in the same way that we do tobacco. Yeah. And I certainly was totally unwilling to do that. I just did not want to go there because I thought everything was fine. You yeah. Know? And I'm sure, I don't think I would have died like a super early death, but I'm sure I would have died earlier than I would have liked mm-hmm. because of the amount that I, if I had continued drinking what I was drinking, the amount I was drinking till death. Yeah. Yeah. That's so yeah. I guess to to wrap up, yeah. is there any final thoughts or final words? Oh and my gosh, I so know. Many. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. I, I just like I, I guess what advice or just kind I think, of what well I think what the sober curious, the term sober curious uh, that Ruby Warrington came up with is if you're she wants to get away from the term a lot of us want to get away from the term sober as well. Mm-hmm. Because it's that it fits within that old alcoholism yes, rock you know, bottom yeah and sober and sober as a judge and it makes you so mm-hmm. boring and all those kinds of things but I think that if you're curious and, and I think a lot of people are 
and I'm going to steal from, from Ruby Warrington. She says, don't waste your time. I forget exactly how she says it, but something along the lines of like, don't waste time wondering if you're an alcoholic. Don't, that's not the question you want to ask yourself. The question you want to ask yourself is, would my life be better if I didn't drink? And what they all suggest is you got to go further than dry January because dry January isn't long enough. In order to get the full effects of what an alcohol-free existence is, aim for 90 days. Try it. And it doesn't have to be forever. It doesn't. But just try it. If you're at all, in the least bit, curious mm-hmm. to see what life without alcohol is like. Because my life, everything revolved around alcohol. Every event. Every social. If I had to drive, oh God, it would like ruin my night if I had to drive. And when you think about it, one night, like relax, like, mm. <laughs> you can drink tomorrow. Yeah, you know. Uh, but when you eliminate it completely, there's a real freedom that it, that is the result. So I think that would be yeah, those would be my closing things. Try one of these ninety day. Uh, yeah. I'll even promote uh, Catherine Gray has something called Sober Spring. So if you Google that, I think that's starting up now. And these authors um, are very very uh, interactive. Uh, on Instagram especially. Like, I've had little exchanges and conversations with uh, Catherine Gray. I think it's them. They, maybe they've hired people. <laughs> and Ruby Warrington. And uh, very, you know, helpful. They give tips, you know. Uh, they're uh, very open to you asking them questions about how am I going to survive Christmas, all these kinds of things. So there's a whole, whole community online where uh, it can be private if you want it to be that. Uh, all kinds of tips on coming what they coming out of the um, coming out of the the non drinking closet. So telling people that yeah. you've decided to quit drinking. I was I got support all around from everyone in the UK. There's a major drink drinkers culture there where it's just people will not accept that you have stopped drinking or trying to. They think it's ridiculous. That sort of peer pressure I didn't experience. Everyone was very supportive. Um, yeah, so I guess those would be my closing words. If you if you if these questions come to you at all, just give it a shot, see what it's like. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's really hard. You've gotta be prepared. But all these books give you tips on how to get through those first weeks. And, and if you are curious, just you know, reach out and yeah. you know, start start yeah. looking at these books and Yeah. You yeah. know. Yeah, and they're good reads. Yeah. Like as English majors, uh, Ruby Warrington and Catherine Gray are uh, fashion former fashion industry writers. They're actual writers, so mm. they, they're really good reads just from that uh, point of view. Um, Annie Grace's book is very readable as well. Um, I don't want to like insult her by comparing, but you sense when you read Ruby Warrington and Catherine Gray that you're reading something written by a writer. Right. You know? uh, but the, this Naked Mind was definitely the, the game changer for me, probably because it was the first one that I read. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so those are my closing words. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for doing this. I really appreciate it, and I think a lot of people will, you know, take a look and kind of maybe reevaluate and maybe, you know, kind of examine examine themselves, and they can definitely learn a lot. Yeah, well, thanks for uh, for, uh, proposing it, and it was a lot of fun. It was great. (laughs) just really nice to see you again. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So this is uh, Pieces of Us show, Um, and if you feel like you have a story um, or a piece that you would like to share, please feel free to email us at piecesofusshow at gmail.com. Definitely love hearing your stories and uh, reaching out. So thank you very much once again for listening. And you guys have a great week. Alex is not the stereotypical alcoholic we see in the movies. 
the one that hits rock bottom and discovers a new pathway towards sobriety, taking the 12 steps to recovery. The purpose of this episode was to not warn about the dangers of alcohol, but rather to have us reevaluate and understand our relationship with it. If this episode made you think about your own alcohol habits, please check out a few of the books that Alex recommended. It was poignant that Alex had mentioned that he tried to become sober in a number of different ways. He tried white knuckling, he tried AA, and then finally he tried quit lit. It is important to understand that different people are going to respond differently. Find the method that aligns with your beliefs and way of thinking. On the next episode of Pieces of Us, I talk with Stephanie Allen about how she transformed one of the worst moments in her life as a teachable moment that perpetuated change in her life. I hope you'll join us. Until next time, I'm Catherine Paquette. Thanks for listening. Stories of yours, stories of men, all we had to share is time and pieces of us, pieces of us, pieces of you, pieces of me, pieces of us, pieces of you, pieces of me, pieces of us, pieces of you.